things as we look this week at church history and next week at church history. This week, you can see in the front, uh, week two, baptism from the early church to the Reformation. Baptism from the early church to the Reformation. Now, that's a 1,500-year period. Uh, there is no way we're going to cover uh, anything close to the fullness of the expanse of 1,500 years of theological and practical developments. But we want to get a, a enough glance that we can get a picture of what was going on after the church began before the Reformation in the 1500s. So a couple things for us to think about. Why look at church history? Why, why not just study the Bible? Why actually refer back to church history to try to learn about a subject that we study in the Bible? Uh, forgot, forgot my marker. Maybe next week I'll remember to bring it. Uh, but we want to think about text, framework, and history. Text, framework, and history. Every time we come to the Bible, look at you. Look at you. Let's all just thank Denise. Thank you, Denise. <clears throat> That was not very thankful. I'm really thankful, uh, Denise. You have a marker in your pocket, Denise? Thank you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to turn this around. Anybody know what this is from? The other side was SpongeBob. Okay, I've never... I have no idea what this is from, so... By sneaking in our church having a board meeting. So you're fine. Thanks. Uh, so if you just look right here, a lot of times when we read the Bible, we let our frameworks drive how we understand the text. So we have in our minds F for framework, and we read the text, and we have a little t. What do you think would be some examples of framework? presuppositions you have about how you see the world, how you see scripture, what would be some examples of a framework? Yeah, Brian. And we mentioned uh, one last week talking about how Mormons look at baptism or how okay. Catholics look at baptism or you know, even Southern Baptists might have their own frameworks, but a lot of the religions that people grew up in, they might be starting with the framework. Religious doctrine. Is that a good, fair enough generality? Yeah. Religion you grew up in. Yeah. Reality of things like suffering? Suffering. It's a huge one. Suffering. You, you feel pain about something, you might read passages differently. Or you might want them to read a certain way. Or you might be looking for them to read something that you have concluded because of your suffering. John? Just experience, personal experience, and uh, tradition. Experience, yeah. We'll put tradition in the church. All right. Any others? Cultural values. Cultural values. Like what, Steve? Baptists have potluck, so everywhere we see food in the Bible, we get excited. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Isms. Isms. What are some isms? Well, like when we were uh, doing Revelation, uh, some of the isms that were presented that people used to look at Revelation yep. would be historicism, idealism, preterism, yeah. futurism, and then that through those yep. lenses, they go, all right, let's study Revelation. 
Calvinism, Arminianism, all kinds of things. Yeah. So we come to the Bible. None of us come without these things. None of us come without these things. We all come with experience. We all come with understanding of what words mean. Uh, we all come with having grown up in some church and heard, heard, heard sermons uh, for some time. So we all come with those things. The error would be that our framework is very big and the text is very small. Okay? What we want to do when we read the Bible is have the text, Scripture, inform our framework. <clears throat> how do we see the Bible? The Bible teaches us how to see the Bible. So we actually want to make the text a capital T and the uh, F the lowercase. So that the text is driving how we understand it. But there's no way that we can ever go to the Bible without an actual framework. So what we actually end up doing is we have the text informs our lowercase framework. When we read the Bible, we're going to have a, some kind of textually informed framework, hopefully. That's going to inform how we read the text the next time, which is going to inform, continue to build on our framework, which is then going to take us to the text, and you see how this is working over and over. The more we read the Bible, the more we have a biblically informed framework about reality and about the Bible itself. How might history be a both bad and good thing to study in the relationship between the framework that we are looking through and the Bible? How might history be a good help? How might history be bad in this relationship? Any thoughts? We might have gotten it wrong. They might have gotten it wrong. You look back, you go, hey, they did it. Their church was big. They must have gotten it right, so we're going to do that. We don't even think about it. We just adopt it. We inherit it. We let they, whatever their framework was become our framework, and we understand the Bible through them, not even reading it for ourselves. That would be a, a bad way for history to interact with our framework. What would be a good way? Um, if we continue to interpret the Scripture along the lines of other spirit-filled believers, there's been spirit-filled believers interpreting Scripture throughout history, Yeah, and we can learn from them. Yeah, we can learn both error and good example. And through looking at multiple interpretations of Scripture through the generations, we can get a good chance to go, I didn't even know that was an error I could make. I didn't even know that was a faithful, a faithful possible interpretation. I didn't even see that. So it helps us in those ways. So it's not chief, but it's not useless. It informs our framework as we let Scripture drive all of our doctrine. Look at Proverbs 18, 1 through 2. Somebody read that out loud for us. I've got dry mouth this morning, so I'm going to try to talk as little as possible starting in a few moments. But somebody read Proverbs 18, 1 to 2. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The fool takes no pleasure in understanding and expressing his opinion. Yeah, what does it say about him who isolates himself, Steve? Seeks his own yeah, the one who isolates himself just blocks out everybody and everything. Put their finger in their ears, blah, 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 blah. No one tell me anything. And that, that's foolish. That's foolish. So we don't want to do that historically either. We want to open our ears to let Scripture talk us through history as well so we can learn lessons uh, both good and bad. So we are looking today at baptism from the early church to the Reformation. 
The goal is to let history test, maybe inform, maybe affirm our understanding of, of Scripture. Uh, we're going to begin with baptism in Acts, and I'm just going to show you this is a list of all the baptisms that are mentioned in the book of Acts. This is a list of all the baptisms that are mentioned in Acts. Uh, it includes both groups and individuals. We're going to look at these in detail in weeks to come. I just want to mention then that if you're going to read through Acts, these are the baptisms that you will find. So we're going to go next to the Didache, <clears throat> chapter 7 in particular, about baptism. Uh, the Didache was discovered in the 1870s. Uh, we don't even know exactly who wrote it, but we know that it was an extension of early church tradition in the first or early second century. This is an example, it's been widely recognized, of how many practices were forming after the first churches that we see in the New Testament. So this would be the Didache, which just means um, instruction. Lost, lost it there for a second. Uh, this is the instruction on how to structure the church. Somebody read that whole section for us. It says second century. It should be second century uh, is when uh, the Didache was uh, written. Somebody read that for us out loud. The Didache, chapter 7. And concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28:19. <coughs> if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot in cold, in warm. But if you have not either, pour out water, Christ upon the head, into the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and be baptized, and whatever others can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. All right. Uh, this is, to my understanding, our, our earliest extra-biblical practice uh, for, for baptism. What do you think about the use of the phrase, into the name? What does that signify? That's not exactly how Matthew 28 reads. Matthew says we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Didache says baptize into the name. Is there a difference? Steve, you're on your head, yes. If you nod, you're going to get called on. What? <laughs> you were thinking about donuts or something. That's okay. Any any thoughts? Is there a difference? Agreeing that there's a difference. Okay. Is, yeah, Marilyn. Okay. 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 That's what a that's an English teacher answer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be somewhere that you weren't before. Now, obviously. It might not mean you're going to bring them into the room over there. But something's happening there for them. They were already thinking that way in chapter 7, or in uh, chapter 7 of Didache. What's living water? Moving. Moving water, yeah, creek, live water, fresh water, clean water, water you'd most likely drink from. What does fasting beforehand signify? They said they should, the baptizer should be, the baptizer fast and the baptized and what other what whatever others can. 
why, why would they be practicing fasting before baptism? Anyone seen this done recently in recent history? <laughs> You're giving me a look like, what? This I'm calculating. I mean, in the Old Testament, they, like Moses told the people to fast and consecrate themselves before, before they were going to see or hear a word from the Lord. So yeah. Maybe it's like a way of sobering themselves. Uh, I think it's a great word. A spiritual sobering preparation of what I'm about to do. Yeah. yeah. Adds weight. To what we're doing. You ought to fast about this was their practice in the first century, second century. It could be from the example of Paul. Okay. How, which one? You have one in particular? Think Paul's of? baptism. Paul, did he fast before his baptism? For three days. Three days, did not eat? Yep. Okay. Uh, what about the one or two days time before baptism? You shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Is that supposed to be like on the third day be baptized? <laughs> I don't think so, but okay. because it says one or two days, yeah. so you can get baptized on the second or third day. What do you think? Why, why wait one or two days? I don't even know if I have the answer for them as much as this is for us to look at and go, this is what they were doing right out of the gate in the first, second century. This was a fairly universal practice. Yeah, well, it I seems. Yeah. Yeah, this is a time to count the cost maybe. Like, uh, like we heard last week from Luke 14. Am I really in on this? Am I ready to pay the cost that this may cost me? be declared a Christian. Usually fasting and prayer, they go together. Yeah. You fast so you can pray. Humbling yeah. yourself and seeking the Lord. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, absolutely. So why the difference between like Philip and the eunuch when he sees him on the road, he shares the gospel with him and hey, there's a pool of water here and yep. you've got a believer. When we get to Acts 8, which we will, we will be talking about that a lot. Okay. Yeah. All right, let's move on to infant baptism in the early church. Infant baptism in the early church. We're going to look at infant baptism in the early church and believer's baptism uh, next on page four in the early church. And I just want you guys to see this is definitely not a, a comprehensive look at baptism in the early church, but this is some snippets uh, from some leaders in strategic churches and places that give us insight into the development of baptismal meaning and practices uh, in the early church. Uh, Irenaeus was said to have been ordained by Polycarp, who is said to have been a disciple of the Apostle John. So that makes us just two, was it two or three generations from one of the apostles uh, themselves. Somebody read what Irenaeus said in uh, 189 A.D. He, Jesus, came to save all through himself. All, I say, who through him are reborn in God, infants and children and youth and old men. <coughs> Therefore, he passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, sanctifying infants, a child for children, sanctifying those who are of that age, so that he might be the perfect teacher in all things. 
perfect, not only in respect to the setting forth of truth, perfect also in respect to the relative age. Relative age of the individual. Do you see anything that sounds true or anything that sounds erroneous in this paragraph? All good? All bad? What do you think? He came to save. That's true. He came to <laughs> There we go. We got, we got something going for us here. Irenaeus is arguing that Jesus was born an infant and made himself all the way to adulthood so that he could redeem all people of all ages. That if he had not been an infant, he might not be able to redeem infants. If he had not made his way to adulthood, could he actually uh, atone for the sins of adults? What say ye? See a lot of confused looks. Ryan? Is sin different based on your age? Yes, that's a great question. Don't think so? Yeah. also talks about old men. He was never an old man. Yes. Uh, Irenaeus, I, I think it was Irenaeus, would actually say, if you continue to read this section, that Jesus made his way into his 50s. That he did become an old man by their standards. So, yeah. we yeah. Now there's more questions, right? That's not old. Questions about what is old. <laughs> Questions about did Jesus make it there? <laughs> Questions about did he have to in order to save those older saints? I guess the question is what's the bigger point that he's making about, about infants, children, youth, and old men? Is, is he saying, is he using this argument, what, what point is he using it to make? Is, yeah. is, he, is he trying to make a case for infant baptism by this? Mm-hmm. Some, some would say, many Presbyterians, other historians will say, he is making his case for infant baptism. But that's part of the argument, is when I read Irenaeus, is that actually the argument he's trying to make? But many will use this to say, this is, this is early teaching of why infant baptism makes sense. So if that's true, if, if this is an argument for infant baptism, I'd say it's not a very good argument. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. But for our sake, we're introducing ourselves to how people are thinking, how people got places. No, it's in the larger context. In history, historians, depending on your historian, will point you back here. Yeah. All right, somebody read Origin from 248 AD. Origin from 248 AD. Thanks, Cal. Appreciate you volunteering. Every soul that is born into, into flesh is soiled by the filth of Sin. In the church, baptism is given for the remission of sins. And according to the usage of the church, baptism is given even to infants. If there were nothing in infants which required the remission of sins and nothing in them pertinent to forgiveness, the grace of baptism would seem superfluous. Next two, go ahead. Oh, sorry. <coughs> the church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. The apostles, to whom were committed the, sac- the secrets of the divine sacraments, knew there are in everyone innate strains of original sin, which must be washed away through water and the Spirit. Baptize first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. All right. What seems to be Origen's two reasons for baptizing infants? Uh, 
two reasons for baptizing infants. At least two. Sorry? They're sinners. They have sin at birth. They're born into sin. Period. That's right. Born with sin. Baptism is for remission of sin. Everywhere sin goes, baptism needs to go. Infants are in sin. Let's baptize them. Yeah. <clears throat> Apostolic authority. We got this. I mean, this is a huge claim. The church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. That's a huge claim. That's not just a biblical interpretation per se. I don't know where this comes from exactly, where his uh, quote proof text might be per se. But he's saying that this is what the apostles gave us, which means this is on Jesus' authority. Yeah. Do you think he's using the texts that say so-and-so um, baptized? The households and acts? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We'll get to households and acts as well. All right, let's go to Augustine 412. Somebody volunteer to read that for us. We're moving along history, moving around a little bit geographically. Somebody read that for us. Chris Watts, got it? What do you think? He's got his big boots on now. <laughs> <laughs> He's got his big boots on now. Okay, what do you, why do you say that, John? He's just making some huge steps. Yeah. Logically. Yeah. Leaps. Yeah. And we can see the progression from the Didache to Irenaeus and Origen and even Augustine in just these little snippets. What did Augustine say about receiving this practice from the apostolic tradition? I suppose, yeah, no, not sure how strong that supposing was, but he supposes this must have come from the apostles because here we are doing it 300 years later. Mary gets to most assuredly the sacrament of regeneration. Mm. What, is it, what does it mean to say that it's a sacrament of regeneration? Just your, your first guess. What do these words mean? It's necessary. Necessary, okay. For... For being born again, yeah. It is the means. It's the means of regeneration. Which, yep, go ahead. I don't know yeah. if it's opening a can of worms, <laughs> but 
We're, we're the, the can opened last week. We're good. So go ahead. Yep. Yep. So, as far as baptism by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling those who come to a true faith in Christ, the Savior and Lord, then yeah, that's the regeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. Doesn't seem to be what he's talking about purely. He seems to be connecting to yeah. baptism itself and it being the means or inseparable somehow from regeneration. Is combining the two. All right, let's go on to the Council of Milium in 416 AD, which was largely influenced uh, by Augustine. So this might sound a little familiar to you. Uh, somebody read that for us. All right. Anyone know what the word anathema means? Heresy. Cursed, heresy. Outside the church, outside gospel doctrine, outside truth. Excommunicated, they say. What will get you excommunicated according to the Council of Millennium? Saying that infants ought not be baptized. Yeah. If you don't think infants should be baptized, you must be claiming that infants don't have sin. You must be claiming that baptism cannot regenerate them. Therefore, you are outside the church, as the Council of Milium, largely influenced by, by Augustine. Who, by the way, Augustine is the hero for everyone's faith. You want to be a dispensationalist? You know, we got isms and ist as well. You, you can go back and find it in Augustine. You want to be an infant baptizer? You can go back and find it in Augustine. If you want to be a Calvinist, you can go back and find it in Augustine. Every, everyone needs Augustine so badly. <laughs> and they can twist a lot of things to find uh, to find friend, friendship there. Um, but we see the argument is progressing even more detailed. They actually include Romans chapter 15, chapter 5 verse 12 that talks about sin passing on from Adam to his progeny and to us even today, pointing us to the gospel in Christ. All right, let's, let's pick up pace a little bit here. Believer's baptism in the early church. <clears throat> Believer's baptism in the early church. Now this is Gregory of Nazianzus, you might think that's his last name, it's actually of Nazianzus, that's where he was born. Uh, this is one of his orations that he gave. This is in the year 381 AD, 381 AD. Now this is an important time to hear doctrine encoded in doctrinal statements or in theological statements, be it personal or in the church. 330 AD... Constantinople becomes the capital of Rome. It moves to Constantinople. In 330 AD, excuse me, 380, Christianity becomes the official religion of Rome. 
And now Gregory of Nazianzus was the archbishop of the church in Constantinople. So you're following the importance of the progression, who this guy is. He is representing the culmination of hundreds of years of doctrine that is now beginning to crystallize in the church in Constantinople. That's what he's getting at here. Um, somebody read that for us, on, starting on page four. Ryan, you got it? Be it so, some will say, in the case of those who ask for baptism, what have you to say about those who are still children and conscious neither of loss nor of the grace? Are we to baptize them too? Certainly, if any danger presses, for it is better that they should be unconsciously sanctified than that they should depart unsealed and uninitiated. But in respect of others, I give my advice to wait till the end of the third year, or a little more or less, when they may be able to listen and to answer something about the sacrament, that, even though they do not perfectly understand it, yet at any rate they may know the outline. And then to sanctify them in soul and body with the great sacrament of the house All right. This, this is how lawyers write documents, I think. Right, John? <laughs> wait till the third year, or a little more, or a little less. Well, when should we wait? Well, depends on what the lawsuit says. Um, in which case would Gregory say you should baptize children? What does he describe? Baptize infants, I should say. Number three, and they have the ability to listen. When does he say you should baptize infants? Oh, die. If they're going to die. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they come out, they're blue, we're in danger, get the priest, baptize now. Right? So he's still carrying on some kind of salvific hopefulness, salvation hopefulness for this infant if they can get baptized before they die. But what does he say? What's the purpose for waiting until year three, more or less? They understand. This makes me wonder if this man has ever met a three-year-old in my whole life. <laughs> but what, yeah, this guy's clearly single. Yeah. What is, uh, what's his argument for waiting? Yeah, they can understand what exactly? Something. Something. They can listen and they can answer. They can listen. They can answer. They could be. They could be told. He says. <clears throat> the very go back to the very first sentence. What have you say about those children, still children, and conscious neither of the loss nor the grace? They don't even know their sin, and they can't have any comprehension of what it means to be forgiven. They don't know either. Right, So we, we're beginning to see here some formulation of uh, believer's baptism, as it were. They can actually have some kind of uh, commitment of faith and understanding. Uh, let's go on to Tertullian, against infant baptism. Actually, the uh, title of this document, I think, is against infant baptism. Uh, 40, 416 AD, somebody read that for us. Greg, you got this one? Sure do. <clears throat> ought not to be rashly granted is known to those whose function it is. It follows that deferment of baptism is more profitable in accordance with each person's character and attitude and even age, and especially so as regards children. For what, <clears throat> for what need is there 
if there really is no need for even their sponsors to be brought into peril, um, seeing that they may possibly themselves fail or their promises, I'm sorry, or fail of their promises uh, by death, or be deceived by the subsequent development of an evil disposition. It is true, our Lord says, forbid them not to come to me, so let them come when they are growing up, when they are learning, when they are being taught what they are coming to, let them be made Christians when they have become competent to know Christ. Why should innocent infancy come with haste to the remission of sins? With no less reason ought the unmarried also to be delayed until they either marry or are family are firmly sorry established in uh, continence. Until then, temptation lies in wait for them, for virgins because they are ripe for it, and for widows because of their <coughs> All who understand what a, back, what a burden baptism is will have more fear of obtaining it than of its postponement. Faith unimpaired has no doubt of its salvation. Faith unimpaired has no doubt of its salvation you see any familiar arguments here what is his argument for delaying baptism from infancy yeah let's call them Christians that is when they can know Christ that's when we will say that they are Christians by that sentence, what is he alluding baptism to be? An acknowledgement that they're Christians. We're not gonna, let's not baptize them yet, because that would be to call them a Christian. And we don't want to do that until they actually know Christ. And we can actually say they are Christians because they know Christ and have put faith in him. So this is kind of the line of Tertullian's thinking in 416. All right, let's, go, let's pick up page 6, the shift in Rome. <clears throat> There's a, a great, you can find this PDF um, written by Anthony Lane, professor of historical theology at London School of Theology. You can find that PDF online. There's a footnote down there for you to find it. He says, There's a total lack of evidence in the first four centuries of any objection in principle to either the baptism or the non-baptism of babies. Given this evidence, what is most likely to have occurred in the apostolic church that the practice of infant baptism was unknown seems to me to be the least likely hypothesis. That it was practiced seems very likely. That it was universally practiced is much less likely, given the freedom that later Christians felt to not baptize their children. He has a wonderful article on whether, really whether or not infant baptism was an apostolic commission or not. That's a great article if you're interested to go back. But he's basically saying the first four centuries are not conclusive that this was mandated as some suggest, by the apostles themselves. Uh, Augustine in the 5th century, Thomas Kidd, has a great book called Baptist in America. He's referring back to some older history here. He says it was in the early 5th century that St. Augustine made the pivotal argument for the adoption of infant baptism. Augustine posited, unlike many earlier Christian writers, that infants were tainted with original sin and therefore were immediately in need of forgiveness. 
Infant baptism, it is said, protected children from the power of evil, gave them the pardon from original sin, and introduced them into the loving community of the church. Uh, Next, the Roman Catholic Church, by the years 1200, uh, began to really crystallize some of what are their modern, even maintained today, ideals of regeneration and baptism. Some of those uh, seeds we see were already planted in the early church. Who's ever heard of this book, Are We Together by R.C. Sproul? You guys heard of this? You can raise your hand. Don't be shy. Uh, this is a wonderful help. R.C. Sproul is walking through Protestantism compared with Catholicism and asking the question, are we in agreement or not? I think you can guess where this is going, but this is about a 100-page book. It's extremely helpful, very clear, and it's concise. Are you sure Question. on these dates of Tertullian versus uh, Council of Nehemiah? Oh, I'm happy to be corrected if you have a different date. I, mean, I don't know. Different I'm, just, date. I'm just noticing both are saying a different thing, and they're both saying it in 416 AD. But th- I noticed that too, and one of the things I noticed is the council, the very first thing, it says, whoever says. So clearly there was teaching from the other side, right? And I wonder if they're actually making a statement against Tertullian. <coughs> it's possible. I could be corrected on this for sure. Let's look at what uh, Sproul tells us about the doctrine of the baptism crystallized in the 1200s. The sacrament of baptism is the first sacrament that is administered to a person in the Roman Catholic Church. As I mentioned above, Rome holds that baptism conveys grace ex opera operato, and that grace that is conveyed by baptism is the grace of regeneration. This means that when a person is baptized... He is born again of the Spirit, and the disposition of his soul is changed, leaving him justified in the sight of God. Rome then believes and teaches that the prerequisite for justification, the instrumental cause, is baptism. That's what Rome teaches. You can see this in the Council of Trent back in 1547 A.D., this is the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church, formalized, crystallizing their statement on baptism. And remember what the word anathema means. Uh, that was one of their favorite words. Uh, from the Council of Trent, If anyone saith that sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them, or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification... Though all the sacraments are not indeed necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. Canon 8. If anyone saith that by the said sacraments of the new law, grace is not conferred through the act performed, but that faith alone in the divine promises suffices for the obtaining of grace, let him be anathema. If anyone saith that little children, for that they have not actual faith, are not, having after received baptism, to be reckoned amongst the faithful, and that if for the cause, for this cause, they are to be rebaptized when they have attained to years of uh, discretion, or that it is better that the baptism of such be omitted, then that, while not believing by their own act, they should be baptized in the faith alone in the church, let him be anathema. This almost gives me chills just to read it. Like, it is striking how absolutely hard, concreted 
they are when it comes to baptism is regeneration for infants. And if you say, if anyone says you are saved by faith alone, anathema. I mean, this is the, this is the, this is the words in 1547 coming out of the first years of the Reformation. So some conclusions for us today. Uh, the underlying of doctrine, what's the underlying doctrine that links early practices of infant baptism in the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s? What was the underlying doctrine? Original sin. Original sin, yeah. So that kind of gives us this conclusion. Some bad doctrines, some bad practices can come from good theology. Infant baptism has some theological roots in Romans 5, 12 through 17. They were, they were thinking some right things about the transmission of sin that seemed to be clear in Romans, but it became something very different that Romans 5 was not intending. For our sake, there's not a linear progression of baptismal doctrine or practices from the first century to Reformation. And positions on baptism only become more diverse following the Reformation. So what does this mean for us? A few thoughts for us today to close. History and tradition, as we began, they're not our authority for doctrine and practice. Through history, we learn both potential errors and good examples of biblical interpretation of baptism. Through history, we test our own presuppositions, our own framework. The Bible is our supreme authority. The actual writings of the apostles, the authority handed down by Jesus, encoded in Scripture, is our authority. History shows us that church has wrestled with doctrines and practices of baptism for ages. It's not a new question. I find this somewhat encouraging to know that I didn't just land here today, and I'm the only one that's ever had two conflicting thoughts about baptism. But that the church, since the beginning, has really wrestled uh, and argued and split over uh, what baptism means and how to practice it. Each local church is responsible for their doctrine and practices. We should not blindly and thoughtlessly inherit doctrine and practices from previous generations. We say in our church, each congregation operates under the lordship of Jesus Christ through democratic processes. Uh, that means one of the decisions that we've made is that we don't answer to a body outside of our church. Our doctrine is up to us. Uh, we have accepted the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as our statement of faith. We did that on our own. No one made us do that. No one can tell us any different. Uh, we can have confidence and certainty in Scripture. Uh, if you're curious, uh, you know, sometimes you read through history and you think, this is so discouraging. Uh, everybody reads the same Bible, and there's a thousand views out there. How could I possibly open my Bible and believe that I'm going to land somewhere right? Uh, a wonderful book that's helpful would be Kevin DeYoung on the clarity of Scripture called Taking God at His Word. Uh, he will just walk through what it means to say the Bible is clear in its teaching and give you encouragement that it's understandable, that you can read it, that you can understand it, and, and not be afraid uh, when, when you address it. Church history teaches us that we should not presume to believe that we have landed at the only possible defensible understanding of baptism while everyone else has entirely missed the mark. Mankind is capable of serious error. We should be open to our own views being tested and formed from Scripture. Uh, if we look at history, one of the things we see is they got it really wrong. And they put it in doc, they encoded it out of councils. And they demanded it and made churches, made, made people anathema because of it. Uh, we have to be really careful to think that in all of history, 
I am the one who has landed on all of the authoritative, true teachings that could never. I, I don't need to grow. I don't need to learn. I don't need to be corrected. History teaches we ought to be very careful about thinking about ourselves that way. Because uh, I don't think you're going to go back to the Council of Trent and say, well, were you guys really convinced? No, nah, we were just playing games. No, they meant it. <laughs> they, they were serious. Uh, a lot of people died because of it. Uh, seeing our church in light of church history brings appreciation for our doctrine and practices. Many doctrines we enjoy freely cost others before us much trouble, even their lives. Looking through history to see how we got here, and we are, we are at the at this end of so many of these things getting worked out before, we get to see how they got worked out and just be thankful where we're landing in history. Uh, we have been given a very rich tradition in, in Baptist churches, a lot that we should be thankful for, a lot that's uh, quite embarrassing and uh, not so great. Uh, but it puts us in a place to be thankful for where we are, uh, even as we're ready to continue to learn. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's continue and commit to continue to understand what that one baptism is together uh, for God's glory and for our joy. Let's pray.